We've already read most of the text we're going to reflect on this morning, Luke 19. Uh, But open a Bible to Luke 19, and I'm going to read a little bit more because I'd like to press on a bit farther in the story, in our reflection this morning, our meditation on Christ's entry into Jerusalem. I'm going to read Luke 19, now 41 through 44, a little bit more. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. What do you picture when you think about a coronation? The last coronation, at least in the English-speaking world, was 1953, quite a long time ago. I doubt any of us remember it, although we might have seen it in the Netflix Crown television series. When Queen Elizabeth II was coronated, uh, 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 it was a one-day ceremony, but it cost the equivalent in modern-day currency of 43 million pounds. It took 14 months to plan by a coronation committee and various uh, coronation commission and various subcommittees. There were two full-day rehearsals. At last, the day arrived, June 2nd, 1953. There were seats for 96,000 people set up along the route of the procession. 29,000 uh, uh, military personnel marched in the procession to Westminster Abbey, where 8,000 guests were in attendance. Television crews were also there and broadcast the coronation, and it was ultimately watched by 277 million people around the world. The ceremony involved the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, various bishops, the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, various representatives of the different British free churches, dukes, duchesses, lords, ladies, knights. Part of it was a communion service. There was a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. Psalms and hymns were sung. Special music was composed for the occasion. At 43 million pounds, something like $60 million, it was perhaps the most elaborate single-day ceremony of the 20th century. When we come to Luke 19, there are similarities. It's clear that Jesus had been planning for his entry. There's a procession, there's crowds, there's psalm singing and acclamation, but there are also marked differences. As we've sung in Ride On, he comes in lowly pomp. There's pomp and circumstance, but it's lowly pomp. Jesus comes in humility, and he arrives weeping at his capital city. Those are the two themes I want to focus on this morning. The king comes in weeping, uh, the king comes in humility, and then the king comes in tears. This might in some ways be a lowly event compared to Queen Elizabeth's coronation, but it is a very significant event. 
There's not a lot of events from Jesus' life that all four Gospels record. Even Jesus' birth is only found in Matthew and Luke, not Mark and John. And yet all four Gospels record his entry into Jerusalem. They record his Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. They record his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. These are the essential, irreducible facts of Jesus' ministry. Let's begin. The king comes in humility. The king comes in humility. Anytime you enter Jerusalem, it's exciting, at least in the ancient world. I'm sure I would be excited to go to Jerusalem as well, so if you want to send me, I can say that firsthand. But it's exciting, and especially the route Jesus took. It begins down at Jericho, seven miles east of Jerusalem. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. The path ascends seven miles over the Mount of Olives, and then it drops down through the Kidron Valley and then enters Jerusalem at 3,000 feet above sea level. So it's quite a climb, almost 4,000 feet across seven miles to get from Jericho to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the excitement. You've topped out on the Mount of Olives, this ridge that runs north-south parallel to the city, and you finally see the city itself. Well, it's even more exciting when you enter the city as part of a pilgrimage. These people are all heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Uh, People would have been coming into the city like Jesus and his disciples from the northern regions around the Sea of Galilee, others coming from farther abroad, from Egypt, uh, from Asia Minor, some perhaps even from Rome, there for the Passover feast. And so as they enter the city, it's not just the excitement of making it up the trail, But the destination is in sight. It's an exciting occasion. But as they cross the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops at Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem. It's sort of the suburbs of Jerusalem. He stops to get a colt. What's this all about? Has he made the journey all the way from Galilee? He's made it all the way, the full climb, 4,000 feet, and now he's worn out and needs a ride? Uh, what's going on with this colt? Well, I, that's not at all what's going on here. It's clear that Jesus has been carefully planning for this moment. There's been elaborate preparation going into this entry. It's a carefully staged entry into Jerusalem. Jesus isn't going to sneak into the city. He's going to enter publicly as the king returned to his city. You might remember from a few weeks ago in Luke 13, the Pharisees warned Jesus that Herod was planning to kill him. They said, go the other way. Don't go to Jerusalem. Head north. Herod wants to kill you. In John 11, we're told that just before Jesus enters the city, the temple leaders had put out an arrest warrant for Jesus. They said anyone who knew where he was at should report to them. Uh, you know, wanted posters of Jesus are pasted all around town. And yet Jesus doesn't come in in disguise. He doesn't try to sneak in. He boldly enters the city as a king. He will not waver from his commitment to the divine plan. Verse 28 hints at this. After he'd finished speaking, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He seems to set out at a quick pace that his disciples can't quite match. He's leading the way up over the hill. 
It's clear this moment was prepared for. He apparently has arranged ahead of time to borrow this colt off some people in Bethany. There's even a password if his disciples are challenged. Say to them, the Lord has need of it, and they will give it to you. Why a colt? Well, it perhaps was common for kings to ride colts. In 1 Kings chapter 1, when David designates Solomon as his heir, who will come to the throne after him, he instructs Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. He says, put Solomon on my donkey and lead him to the place where he'll be anointed. And they do so, and the people follow him, shouting, long live King Solomon and praising God. There's echoes of that scene here, isn't there? David's greater son now again is set on a donkey and led to the place where he will be anointed. But it's Jesus stresses, it's a colt on which no one has ridden. What's that about? Well, it seems quite clear that Jesus had planned this entry as a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, where Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and has salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in the Greek translation that was familiar to Jesus' disciples, it says, on a new colt. So Jesus recruits a new colt, a colt no one has ridden on before. Zechariah 9 continues, The king will get rid of weapons. He will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He will set prisoners free and restore double to his people. So Jesus has carefully staged how he will enter the city. He's saying, I am your king coming to you. I am the righteous king promised by Zechariah, the king who brings salvation, who sets prisoners free, who restores his people. I am the king who will rule to the ends of the earth. Well, we're not as familiar with the Old Testament, so it might seem like, okay, that's an interesting detail that Jesus is picking up there. But the symbolism is clearly not lost on his disciples or on the crowds. The disciples come to Jesus and they take off their cloaks to make a makeshift saddle for the colt. And they set Jesus on the colt. And they take off, others take off their cloaks and lay them in the street. That's not, simply not something that's done. You know, you and I have a number of shirts. Uh, I took off my sport coat already because it was too warm this morning for me. But, you know, I have another jacket if I laid that one in the street and had to give it up. But in the ancient world, people maybe had two or three cloaks. This is like their good winter coat that they're laying down on the rough, rocky road to be destroyed. It simply wasn't done in the ancient world, except for for kings. In 2 Kings 9, uh, a man named Yehu is anointed by the prophet Elisha to be the new king over Israel. He's anointed kind of in this back room, and he comes out, and all of his, uh, uh, the commanders of the army are all assembled together, and they say, well, what was that all about? What did the prophet want to talk to you about? And he said, it's kind of a funny story. We'll, someday we'll preach through Second Kings and get to it. But at first he says, well, you know these prophets. They're always saying crazy stuff. And they're saying, no, we don't know what the prophet said. What did he say? He said, well, he anointed me king over Israel. Well, then all the commanders take off their cloaks and lay them across the stairs 
and say, long live Yehu. Okay, they recognize this is how you treat a king. And the disciples recognize this as well. As Jesus descends the Mount of Olives and he draws near to Jerusalem, the crowd, the multitude of his disciples rejoice and praise God for his mighty works which have been done in Jesus. And they declare from the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Okay, they recognize Jesus riding on a colt as a coming king. Psalm 118 is the last of what is called the Hillel Psalms, psalms that were used to be sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. In Psalm 118, there's two voices if you go back and read through that psalm. The main voice is that of a priest king. He's been delivered from his enemies. He's won a great victory. And now he leads the people up to Jerusalem to worship together. That's the main voice, this king leading his people into worship. And so he says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And then the second voice in that psalm is a response from the city. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. As Jesus enters, the people recognize him as this king, this priest king, in fact, who's come in victory to lead his people in worship. And so they say, blessed is Jesus, the righteous king who comes in the name of the Lord, who brings salvation as Zechariah promised. So Jesus has carefully planned for this moment to enter the city as a king. But he's a king who comes in humility, in lowly pomp. There's no 43 million pound budget for this coronation ceremony. No 30,000 people in his retinue. No red carpet. Jesus enters the city on a borrowed donkey with a makeshift saddle. The way is lined not with a red carpet, but with the disciples' own clothes. John Calvin comments that this could well have been a laughable scene. You have a bunch of out-of-town pilgrims stripping their clothes off, pulling down palm branches from the trees, and lining the way to declare this itinerant teacher as the king. It could almost be a laughable scene except for this. They were doing this in all seriousness. This is no farce. It's in total earnestness. And yet there's no greeting from the city. In Psalm 118, he says, open up the gates to me. And the people from the city declare, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. There's no response from the city. Jesus enters as a king, but the king comes in humility. The humbleness of the king is hard, as we're going to see in a moment, for the temple leaders to accept. And it can continue to be hard for us in the church to accept. We want a king who reigns in power and glory. We want his kingdom to be powerful. We want his church to be rich and influential. In and of itself, it's not bad to have a good budget, but the reality of the church is, of Christ's kingdom is, it often operates on a marginal budget. It often operates on the margins of society. Wiser Lake Chapel has very little political influence. If we call the county commissioners tomorrow, 
they're not even going to pick up for us. Okay? God's kingdom, like God's king, comes in humility. And that's the way of things. It can be hard for us to accept, though. The king comes in humility, but we need to see a second theme in this passage. The king comes in tears. The king comes in tears. He comes in tears because he is a divisive king. Literally, he's a king who divides people, and they're divided by their very response to Jesus. Do you see in verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Luke phrases that very carefully. He doesn't say some Pharisees were in the crowd and said, rebuke your disciples. He says some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd said, rebuke your disciples. Other Pharisees are apparently going along with this, even singing Psalm 118. But some of the Pharisees say, teacher, that's an honorary title. They recognize him as a teacher, but they say this is too much to declare you as the king. So even the Pharisees are divided in response to Jesus. Rebuke your disciples, this is too far. But Jesus says to them, if I tell you if these were silent, even the very stones would cry out. If my disciples don't acknowledge me as king, creation itself will bear witness to me. And then we're told as Jesus descends the Mount of Olives, this ridge that runs parallel to the city, when the city comes into sight, uh, Jerusalem, you have houses in the lower city down to the southeast. Uh, Behind it, in the west, Herod's great temple complex, or a uh, palace complex, more houses in the upper city. And then on the northeast corner, at the highest point in the city, is Mount Zion, the temple complex. And as all this comes into sight, from the temple to the houses, how does Jesus respond? we're told that he burst into tears. The term Luke uses here, he wept over it. It's, he wept loudly. He wailed. This is not a tear in the corner of his eye as he sees the city. This is a loud public demonstration of his anguish. And then he utters these words of prophetic lament in verses 42 through 44. Jerusalem is, direct, is addressed directly ten times, I think. It says, you, 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 if only you knew, you will be destroyed. And in this prophetic lament, there's an indictment. You don't know the things that make for peace. And so the verdict, Jerusalem will be surrounded by her enemies, hemmed in, and torn down. It's a stern warning. It's a frightening image of judgment. And we have these sorts of images scattered throughout Jesus' teaching and the New Testament, that there is a final moment of judgment, a point of no return. But we need to hear Jesus' tone as he utters these words. It's not vindictive against the city that will reject him. It's not anger that he will be falsely accused and crucified on the cross. No, he speaks these words in sorrow. His heart is broken that his own people will reject him. He weeps over his own. 
Look at the indictment, this key charge that's at the beginning and the end, verse 42, verse 44. He says, you did not know on this day the things that make for peace. You did not know the time of your visitation. That's not saying you missed your appointment, but that God is visiting his people and you didn't recognize the time. Saying God is coming to his people in Jesus, but Jerusalem doesn't see it. Jerusalem doesn't recognize it. The disciples discern God at work in Jesus. They recognize that God has been at work in Jesus, and so they give glory to God for the great works that Jesus has done. They bless Jesus as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But not everyone recognizes this. Some of the Pharisees think it's too much to use Psalm 118. Jerusalem, or specifically her leaders, Herod, the governor, Pilate, the temple leaders, they don't know what makes for peace. And so they miss what God is doing in their midst. They miss the moment of divine visitation. In fact, we're told it is hidden from their eyes. In fact, it's hidden by the very humility that Jesus comes in. In Philippians 2 that we read earlier in the service, Paul says, The Son of God took on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To fulfill God's plan, to make peace between God and humanity. To bring the salvation that Zechariah 9 promises, Jesus is obedient and comes in humility. But his very humility, the form of a servant that he takes on, means that he is hidden from many eyes. It's like the great escape. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the story that they dig tunnels out of the camp that they're held prisoners of war in right under the guards' noses. They don't know that it's happening. It's like that. Jesus, here is the great escape, not from a, a prisoner of war camp, but escape from sin and death, and it's happening right under their noses, and they miss it. They miss it. But Paul continues in Philippians 2 that we've already read this morning. People may miss Jesus when he comes in his humility, but that's not the end of the story. One day, every knee will bow before King Jesus. One day, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. John says the same thing at the end of the book of Revelation. Here, Jesus comes to his people riding on a donkey in lowly pomp. But one day, he will return riding on a white stallion in glory, and on his robe and on his leg will be written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And at that day, he will be unmistakable. His return will not be missed. Friends, the same challenge faces us that faced Jerusalem. Do we recognize God at work in this king who comes in humility and tears? It's easy for us to see a king who comes with 43 or a queen who comes with 43 million pound budget with all sorts of pomp and circumstance. But can we see a king who comes in humility? Can we discern God's visitation in Jesus, this man riding on a borrowed donkey with a makeshift saddle? Can we see the mighty work of God in this man arrested, beaten, crucified, buried, but finally resurrected. 
Jesus says, you don't know what makes for peace. This is what makes for peace. A king who gives up his life to make peace between God and man. Friends, this is the challenge for us this week as we look ahead to Easter, as we celebrate together Monday, Thursday, as we read the painful crucifixion account on Good Friday, as we remember Jesus' day in the grave on Holy Saturday, and then come together again and celebrate Easter morning. This is the challenge. Can we discern God at work in the King who comes in humility and tears? If we miss him in that coming, he will be unmistakable when he returns on his white war stallion. But we need to prepare by seeing him in his first coming. Let us pray. Truly, you are a king beyond our understanding, Jesus. Human kings come with glory and pomp and circumstance. You come in lowly pomp, in humility. You come with tears for your people. And yet in your very tears and in your humility and your obedience, we see your love for your own and your commitment to do whatever is necessary to fulfill God's plan in perfect obedience, to rescue your people from sin and from death. By your Holy Spirit, even now this morning as we sing your praise, be at work in our hearts, helping us to discern Jesus, to discern God at work in Jesus, to recognize the true King of all the earth. Help us to see what even the stones know, that you are the blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord. As we prepare to celebrate this holy week together, as we reflect individually, may your spirit be at work within us, giving us a deeper love for Jesus, that we might welcome Jesus with praise to the glory of God. Amen.